Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. Okay, so we're concluding. We're, we're doing the second half of uh, Ursula the Winds, The Left Hand of Darkness. This one, the Hugo and the Nebula Awards, and it's a classic example of science fiction not having to deal with technology. This is a, in order to be science fiction. So this is clearly science fiction, but it's social science fiction, not technology science fiction or physics science fiction. There are two articles in today's New York Times that are particularly, in the front page of today's New York Times, that are particularly relevant to our interpretation of the book or aspects of the book. Because what we covered last time was the basic idea that the gender angle or the gender theme of, uh, of an androgynous world was really a way for us to detach ourselves from our own selves and to enter her world new, completely fresh, innocently, and thus to get a reflection back more truthfully of what we really are without ca us carrying so much baggage, our own personal baggage into it. Well, there's two things that happened in today's New York Times that are relevant to the book. And I want to see if you can figure it out. There's a lead article that says, U.S. reclassifies many documents in secret review. Papers taken off the shelves. Inquiry into complaints that much of material poses no threat. This is today's February 21st, 2006, Tuesday. In a seven-year-old secret program at the National Archives, intelligence agencies have been removing from public access thousands of historical documents that were available for years, including some already published by the State Department and others photocopied years ago by private historians. The restoration of classified status into to more than 55,000 previously declassified pages began in 1999 when the Central Intelligence Agency and five other agencies objected to what they saw as a hasty release of sensitive information after a 1995 declassification order signed by President Bill Clinton. It accelerated after the Bush administration took office and especially after the 2001 terrorist attacks, according to archive records. But because the reclassification program is itself shrouded in secrecy, governed by a still-classified memorandum that prohibits national archives, even from saying which agencies are involved, it continued virtually without outside notice until December. That was when an intelligence historian, Matthew M. Aid, noticed that dozens of documents he had copied years ago had been withdrawn from the, ar from the archives' open shelves. Mr. Aid was struck by what seemed to him the innocuous contents of the documents. Mostly decades-old State Department reports from the Korean War and the early Cold War, he found that eight reclassified documents had been previously published in the State Department's history series, Foreign Relations of the United States, the stuff they pulled should never have been removed, he said. Some of it is mundane, and some of it is outright, ridi outright ridiculous. 
After Mr. Aid and other historians complained, the Archives Information Security Oversight Office, which oversees government classification, began an audit of the reclassification program, said J. William Leonard, the director of the office. Mr. Leonard said he ordered the audit after reviewing 16 withdrawn documents and concluding that none should be secret. If those sample records were removed because somebody thought they were classified, I'm shocked and disappointed. Mr. Leonard said in an interview, it just boggles my mind, the mind. And this is the director of the, of the office. Okay, well, Mr. Leonard, if Mr. Leonard finds that documents are being wrongly reclassified, his office could not unilaterally, re- unilaterally release them. Now, I want to give an example here. I don't want to stop reading the article, but give an example here of the types of documents that are being reclassified. One is a document dating back to 1950, for example. And here we have a document that says, Threat of Full Chinese Communist Intervention in Korea. Capabilities. The Chinese communist ground forces currently lacking requisite air and naval support are capable of intervening effectively but not necessarily decisively in the Korean conflict. Probability of Chinese communist action. While full-scale Chinese communist intervention in Korea must be regarded as a continuing possibility, a consideration of all known factors leads to the conclusion that barring a Soviet decision for global war, such action is not probable in 1950. During this period, intervention will probably be confined to continent covert assistance to the North Koreans. Okay, that was on a document. Now, it so turns out that a full-scale Chinese intervention in Korea was a possibility, but not probable, according to the document, and the document was dated October 12th. <coughs> a CIA memo. It was a CIA memo. Well, <coughs> nearly 300,000 Chinese troops crossed into Korea 15 days later <coughs> on October 27th, which means the CIA got it totally wrong. And the document represents conclusions drawn uh, in the CIA that were just totally fallacious, totally wrong, totally, totally off. This type of thing has happened many times. We were caught completely off guard with regard to the fall of the Soviet Union, former Soviet Union, the collapse of the Shah of Iran. There are just examples after examples after examples of the U.S. just not getting it, not knowing it. (coughs) Major changes happen and they're just, you know, the the weapons of mass destruction issue, the whole, whole, with regard to uh, Saddam Hussein, the, the intelligence is not as good as we would like people to think it is. And it recognizes that there are human aspects to intelligence that are just, like all of the humans, mistakes. But what we have here is something else. The idea for secrecy. The idea of covering up everything. Now this program had been going on for how long? Since 1999. Yeah, since 1999. And it was just now, and the program itself was secret. 
the, the program to reclassify was secret. So nobody knew about it till 2006. So the real question is, if this is sort of a modus operandi of the government, what else is going on? How much secret stuff is not is not is not known? Now the other article I wanted to to read to you is the second lead article in the New York Times. And then I'd like to sit back and compare them both with Ursula, Ursula Le Guin's Left Hand of Darkness. This is a article about a German citizen that was abducted and taken to Kabul <coughs> with uh, the assistance of the United States government, falsely accused of being a terrorist. Germans looking into complicity in seizure by U.S. Case of terror suspect. Berlin is accusing is accused of being pa- silent partner in man's abduction in, to Kabul. For more than a year, the German government has criticized the United States for its role in the abduction of a German man who was taken to an American prison in Kabul, Afghanistan, where he said he was held and tortured for five months after being mistaken for a terrorist suspect. German officials said that they knew nothing about the man's abduction and have repeatedly pressed Washington for information about the case, which has set off outrage here. At a meeting in Berlin last December, Chancellor Angela Merkel demanded an explanation from Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice over the incident. But on Monday in New Elm, near Munich, the police and prosecutors opened an investigation into whether Germany served as a silent partner of the United States in the abduction of the man, Khalid el-Mazri, a German citizen of Arab descent who was arrested December 31, 2003 in Macedonia before being flown to the Kabul prison. The action came after a two and a half hour meeting at police headquarters in which Mr. Mazri told the police that he was 90% certain that a senior German police officer was the interrogator who had visited him three times inside the prison in Kabul but had identified himself only as Sam. The German prosecutors said, minding that they were also investigating whether the German embassy in in Skopje, Macedonia, had been notified about Mr. Mazri's kidnapping within days of his capture there, but then had done nothing to try to help him out. Mr. Mazri's case has come to symbolize the CIA practice known as extraordinary rendition in which terror suspects are sent to be interrogated in other countries where torture is commonly used. In broadening its criminal inquiry into abduction, the abduction of Mr. Masri to the activities of its own government, German prosecutors are trying to determine whether the German government works secretly with the United States in the practice. I feel deceived and betrayed by my own country, Mr. Masri, a, 30, a 42-year-old unemployed car salesman from New Elm said in an interview. All right, well, the German police official identified as Sam I d- denied that he had visited Mr. Masri in Afghanistan and said he was on holiday at the time in Germany, but that he could not remember exactly where. Oh, and it also says the man was present on Monday at the police station where Mr. Masri picked him out of a 10-person lineup. Okay, what's the connection between these two articles and Ursula Le Guin's Left Hand of Darkness? What's going on here? Well, the second one is about, like, wrongful 
I see. So you're looking at it from the pres- from the from the perspective of Estrovan, the 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 person who was in power. Well, I mean, the same thing applies to Jen Liai. I mean, later on he would be shipped to the starts with a P and I can't remember its name, penal colony. Yeah, the prison. Yeah, he was shipped to that prison and ended up spending quite a bit of time there and he hadn't done anything wrong either. I mean he was it was it was a power game. Well, that's an interesting point. He was shipped to the prison colonies. What was the and it was a power game you say. Well let's talk a little bit about that. What was the what was the society like that he was that he was in the it was I mean it, I mean it reminded me a lot of uh, the, the US or Britain I mean you just had you know you had two major parties you had the open trade party and then there was another one and then you had the SARF which was like the secret police mm-hmm. sort of and then the intelligence people also. the intelligence people also and then they like and then I, I didn't really understand this somehow there was like a coup or something and they got into power and then they had him exiled sorry uh, they had him exiled and so he went and stayed uh, he went to this penal colony and then and he had to help well it wasn't exactly a coup but that the Sarf people were placed almost everywhere. Yes. Now, remember what happened when Estrovan was telling the his his friends in his friends in power, "Why don't you just be open and state publicly that this representative from the Ecumen of known worlds has arrived and force the issue?" What do you remember? What what? His 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 friend said, in the go- who was in the government of uh, Ogorin. I, I remember he counseled against it because in the next chapter Astrovan came and told him to do it, and then it was like some festival and gently kept going to people's houses trying to ask them what was going on. Yeah, but I don't remember what he said. Well, if you remember the his 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 friend said well, his friend in the government, said that what am I supposed to do, stand on the street corner like a lunatic and say the extraterrestrials have come? Uh, we have a, a, a someone from another world visiting here? Where are you going to get this public public response? Where is the government going to do? And then the SARF, the intelligence people, were absolutely everywhere, but you didn't know where they were. They were everywhere, but you didn't know that was the nature of the secret intelligence. You didn't know where they were. That's the whole nature of secret. Just like with this thing of reclassifying documents, the program of reclassifying wasn't even known. You don't even know who is a SARF agent and who is not a SARF agent, what they're doing. The nature of secrecy and everything. And so when he said, uh, what am I supposed to do? Then Estrovin, if you recall, said, well, what? why don't you just send up a radio signal? 
to signal the ship and have the large ship, the interstellar ship, come down. And does anyone re- remember what the response was there? Until there's some agreement in the government. There had to be some agreement, but he said, "What would else?" He said, "What would happen?" He said, "We would not know. We would be caught with our pants down because the SARF would control all of the communications. So even if we sent something up, and they got a message back, the SARF would not report it." they would say that it was just jumbled stuff and we'd look like we were ridiculous and we'd be thrown out of power for being lunatics. Meaning the intelligence people would control the information that you have. And even if they did get valid information back, they wouldn't let you know that valid information. Now, ask yourself, what was the general nature of Orgarim when he first... when? Genli I first entered the society, what was the overall nature? What did he notice about it? What was his first reaction? He had left Kardish and he had gone into Ogarin. Of the city? Of the whole place. What did he notice about it? After he got after he was recognized and he was brought in. It was more structured and more structured. He's like this is a planet that could actually have the known worlds, you know, come and help with that because they actually had some kind of economic stability or something. Yeah. And he said, like, I wish I had been here in the first place. He said, yeah, he said, I wish I had been here in the first place. It was like he arrived in civilization finally. These people he can deal with. He can understand these people. Exactly. What did it turn out? What was, what was the real, th- what was, what did he learn from that society that he didn't know in the mi- in, in initially? How open was the society? Something that relates to these article, these articles here. Yeah, well, I mean, there was a. I, I, right when he got sent to the penal colony, I seem to remember him having like an internal monologue about how, you know, he'd, he'd seen he'd seen society in Orgrain on one level, and then all of a sudden he just realized that it wasn't really run on that level. It was sort of a show on that level, and that fundamentally it was run, you know, by the SARF and that now he's being shipped to this penal colony because he hadn't, you know, played ball on the lower level. Well, actually, he did play ball on the lower, on the other level. He was just being sent because, meaning, did he do anything wrong? No. Did he commandeer the radio stations and broadcast his presence or anything like that? But he was definitely, you're absolutely correct, he was definitely sent to the penal colony and sort that there was a two-sided there was an open nature to the society but that open nature involved what what kind of meetings did he have did how far open did it actually get did anyone on the street recognize him no i, re- I remember he was talking about that too that people in carhide they they'd known him they'd seen him on the street they'd see him on the street and they'd say oh you're the you know you're the representative from wherever but in Orgarain, no one Yeah. So in Karhide, even though it was a relatively more primitive or less sophisticated society, they at least were talking about it openly. But in Orgarain, it was on the surface a more open type of society, more sophisticated. But the only thing he did was talk to the bigwigs. Nobody was open about it. So there was an appearance of openness as he negotiated with people. 
But the reality was behind the scenes, everything was hidden. And I think it was kind of interesting that um, in the in the whole book, like the one place that he didn't have to worry about, um, oh, I can't remember, Shifgrathor. <laughs> like the one place he didn't have to worry about that was in Orgrain. You know, the, the one place that supposedly had the like highest form of government, the highest form of civilization, was one place where there was no honor, where there was no, you know. There, there was no, there, there, there was none of that. But but then in, you know in Carhide where it was you know less sophisticated, everything was based on honor. You know you had to do things that would increase your honor. And you know when he went in the end to the Kermlands where Estravan was from, you, you know it was it was still you know increasing his honor. And you know it was just like everything everywhere everything he did everywhere he went was based on like the Shifgrathor principle or whatever. And then everything he did when he was in Orgrain wasn't. You know, it's a very interesting situation. He seemed to be able to speak more openly and more bluntly in Oberyn, which was part of the seductive quality of thinking it was more open. But in reality, it was much more dangerous because the things were happening that he couldn't see that were much more deadly. So how would we compare it, the Oberyn thing, with this U.S. reclassifies many documents in secret re- secret review article how what's the connection here what do we have see Ursula Le Guin, Ursula Le Guin when she writes about a book she a social science fiction book she doesn't want just to give us a window into a fantasy but to give us a window into ourselves so what how do we relate what's happening with Ogarine with what's happening today in the New York Times with regard to the classification of the papers. I mean, it's, it's all the same. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. information that the intelligence agencies are deciding what we need to know, what we don't need to know. And then stuff they don't want us to know, they're just covering up. It's the control of information and that the agencies themselves decide, you're right, of what we should know and what we should know. Go ahead. That's what I was just going to say, basically, that everything was hidden, and that's kind of sounding like there's a lot of stuff for many years that people didn't even know about, and now that it's coming out, it's kind of similar. Now, that's, that's a good point. Everything is being hidden. There is a, there's an interesting aspect to this article. What in particular was being hidden. What was the example of the article of the paper that was being hidden, the CIA report about Korea and China? What was the nature of that? Why should that be hidden? Something that dates back to nineteen fifties. I mean it sounds Could a lot like the revisionist history. I mean, you know, you you don't want those things which would cast a bad l- I mean it's like history is written by the winners is you know, there's that saying that you know. And so I mean it's kinda like, well, we c- if we can reclassify this, and for seven years, no one's even going to notice that we've been doing this. I mean, all the way since 1999, we've been doing this, we've been reclassifying, we've been hiding these things. It's kind of like no one can sort of point the finger at us for making a mistake back then if we can get rid of all the documents that, you know, say we thought otherwise. It's like a huge, like, cover-up, basically. And, and it's a very interesting cover-up. Who are they trying to protect? Meaning, the Korean War is long gone. Who and the people who were involved in the intelligence collecting are all at least retired, if not, you know, in the grave. Go ahead. The reputations. 
What? Whose reputation? What? Their own. The Who's agency as a whole. Uh, I mean, just, I mean, part of the CIA, one of the big things, I mean, I know this is kind of an odd example, but I mean, Tom Clancy in the Jack Ryan novels, Jack Ryan was a CIA analyst. That's what he did. And the reason that, you know, he was always prominent in those novels was because he wrote amazing analyses of what was going on. And so, I mean, it's, it's the same sort of, I mean, and if that's what, if that's what, that enterprise does, if that's what the CIA does, if they write analyses of what's going on in the world, then it would be the most natural thing in the world for them to not want people to see where they completely butchered it. And it wasn't even like three years in advance they butchered it. It was 15 days before it happened. Yeah. They had no clue. So, I mean, it, it's sort of like a form of like internal revisionist history. It's kind of like, we don't want these documents out there that people can see. You know, We're not good at the only thing we're here to do. It's an interesting thing. There are agencies within the U.S. government that are, as you say, re, you know, revising history for their own protection. So in, in reality, these documents that are being taken off the shelf, they had been lying innocuously there for a long time. What we're seeing here is internal control, you see. It's not like someone's actively using them and trying to prove a point, but it's internal control control of one source of information from other people that could be either in another area of the government or another sector of society. Internal control. And the same thing kind of happens in the novel. I mean, with the SARF, they are the internal control for the government. And when... And it wasn't even that Jen Lee I had, had done something that, that would make them think that he was you know, precipitously leaping towards, you know, bringing down his ship. I mean, in fact, the last thing they knew, he'd been warned not to. Um, and so it was just kind of like they came to the realization that he could really damage their control of, you know, Wargrain. And in the end, you see that he does. I mean, you know, when the ship comes down, there's a, there's a little paragraph in the end about how the Sarf and Orgrain lose control of the government and begin receding into the background because they can't... The history coming down was the end of their reign. That's an interesting point, a very interesting point. The idea is that internal control is sometimes more important. Actually, the norm is internal control apparently is more important than the overall goal of governing the society. So if you were to look at this declassification of U.S. documents, what would be the overall goal? to open up the society. That's why President Bill Clinton ordered the declassification in the first place, which is to open up the society, make it less of a secretive society, make it more of a public democratic type of orientation where information is 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 the is the key to running a democracy, free access to information. But that's not how the agencies themselves operate and that they can operate in their own with their own turn, internal logic. With the left hand of darkness in Orgarine, we have the exact same type of thing happening. We have people controlling the government by controlling the information that other people have. Now, what did Jen Lee I really want to do? He wanted to bring an enlightenment to the planet, to the entire planet, to winter, to connect the entire planet up with the rest of the world, the rest of human humankind. And you can think of that as one of the most altruistic ideas. I mean, the idea of 
here you are on a planet, you're isolated, why don't you join the rest of humanity, which is out there, 80 plus some odd worlds. I mean, what's the big deal? But the internal control of agencies dominates even something as good, altruistic as that. And they weren't threatening military invasion, they were just threatening communication. Why don't we just open up communication, lines of communication, we'll give you technology, we'll do other things. It was that internal control. Power, ultimately, from Ursula Le Guin's point of view in Left Hand of Darkness, internally controlled is more, the, is more of the dominant element than the idea of enlightening the society. Well, I, I think that's kind of an important thing. I mean, I think that... Inter- um, I don't. I can't remember the name of the psychologist, but there's a psychological principle that you know people have an internal locus of control who believe that events in their lives are controlled or are within their power to control live much more satisfied lives than people who believe in an external locus of control and believe that you know no matter what they do, fate is going to knock them down or you know someone will take away what they just got or you know all kinds of things and you know then experiments to prove that on on rats and if, if rats believe they don't have control then they just become listless and depressed and won't do anything and I mean I think the same kind of thing applies on the larger scale to governments I mean if a government doesn't believe that they have the power to regulate governmental functions they're not really a government. So, I mean, I agree that the SARP is more internal control than one would ever wish on a society. But at the same time, you can't underestimate the importance of some form of internal control. That's an interesting thing. you damned if you have it and damned if you don't have it. You, yeah. you have to have it, but once you have it, you're in a situation where it's controlling you. Well, it's one of those things that needs that needs controls on it. I mean, it's one of those things where, when it's when it's too small, it naturally wants to grow. I mean, if if you don't have enough internal control, you're going to want to start controlling some things to make your society more stable. Well, at some point, your society is going to become stable, and that's the point where you want to cut that off because otherwise, you're going to have whatever you know entity you're re- is regulating your internal control. That entity is going to say, "Well, you know, life got a lot better when we sort of stabilized at this level, but now, you know, if we controlled some other things over here and over here, we can just you know keep moving onward, and all of a sudden, they control everything. And for them, it's great, and for the people who are being controlled, it's not so good." What does Ursula Le Guin say in The Left Hand of Darkness with regard to the ability of humans to to seize back their level of control? It's possible, but only under extraordinary circumstances. Well, did it happen in Ogarin? Eventually, but only with the coming of the acumen. Only with the coming of the landing of the ship? Yeah. What about Kardish, or, or Cardhide? Did it happen there? Did it happen naturally? Did anyone in the entire planet, from either side, say, this is good, I think it's a good idea, bring down the ship, let's enjoy this? No. No one did. What actually had to happen? Just think about it, and just think about it from a human perspective. Did anyone sort of just logically say, let us loosen our bonds of control over society? and give up some level of power and change. Or actually not even give up some level of power. Nobody had to give up any power. The only thing so they were asked to do is to... Uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. It's like what the King of Kind said, that 
it's a threat to him because there's to him he's like the king of his land the king of Karhai yeah. except then if like the coming of the Achaemen comes his position becomes smaller weaker because suddenly he's one man who controls maybe a con- like a country but there are people out there who control a world or even more than one world so in comparison to that he feels like threatens he feels a lot weaker than he did before so he wants to try and keep that from happening just so he can keep the feeling of dominance for himself he wanted to keep that from happening in order to keep control for himself now let me ask you a question when he finally did say okay bring the ship let's see the ship bring the ship down what was actually how did he do it under what circumstances did he do it did he openly say let's bring the ship down did he make a decision what was Estrevan's advice to Jen Liai when he said, now that we're here, get to the radio station and do this. Do not wait. Do not wait for someone to say it's okay. Do he, not... He wasn't going to get the go-ahead if he hadn't just been proactive and done it himself. Go ahead. I mean, he... I mean, it wasn't a, it wasn't that place I was gonna just change and say, "Hey, sure, why not?" I mean, Esher- it wasn't going to happen. Esteban knew that. He knew they would have to just take kind of measures into their own hands if they wanted to make this change happen. So, in a very real sense, <laughs> even in Carhide, it wasn't going to happen. No. And and what was the only reason once they once it was forced upon them? Meaning, the external events had to be set up such that it was forced upon them. Once it was forced upon them, why was the king of Karad more likely to go along with it once it was forced upon him? Because he couldn't do anything about it. I mean, fundamentally, if he had rejected the acumen, then someone else would have. It was kind of one of those things where, to maintain your power, it, it had already been forced on him, so he could either take it with good grace and save face, or it was going to be really ugly. Well, let's look at this one thing. That's good. He could take it with good grace, because was that all that was going on? Uh, let's go to page 294. I think this is in the last chapter. Chapter uh, 20, A Fool's Errand. When the king was saying about, about Estrovin's counsel, well, it was not wrong. At any rate, they'll land here. We shall be the first. And they're all like you, eh? All perverts, always in Kemmer. A queer lot to vie for the honor of receiving. Tell Lord Gorchen, Gorchen, the Chamberlain, how they expect to be received. So see to it that there is no offense or omission. They'll be lodged in the palace wherever you think suitable. I wish to show them honor. You've done me a couple of good turns, Mr. I. Made liars of the commonsals and then fools, and presently allies, my lord. I know, the king said shrilly, but Carhide first! Carhide first! What's going on there? What's still going on in the mentality? Since this is going to happen, one or the other, then it's best, the king believes it's best if he gets like, the first fish in there the first person who gets the ability to do this because at least that gives him some level of 
something. Superiority over the rest of the planet. Control. Superiority has some level of control over someone else. So, what was the the uh, the, the couple of good turns Mr. I did? Bringing the ship down. Pardon me. Giving the king the opportunity to get supreme like making fools out of people. Well, also here, Mr. I made liars of the commensals and then fools. The well, commensals are the are the people who are governing. The all right. Well, yeah. and and so completely unintentionally, I mean, when Estrovin had rescued him, the the Orgrain said he died, and so, I mean, he turned him into liars right then when Estrovin, you know, wandered across the border with Mr. I, and then he made them fools because you know they had him in their hands. I mean, he what like the the key to I mean the king sees that now he has no choice but to accept the ship. But man, Carhide is going to be the first there. They're going to be the first with the acumen. They're going to be you know very prominent on this planet. Everyone's going to have to ally themselves with them. And he says, you know, you've made fools of them. You they had you in their grasp, and now we have you, and you're going to bring your ship here. Don't you see? That's exactly right. But don't you see what this all ultimately turns down to? How are they still thinking? How is the king still thinking? What was the thinking before this? I have control. I am keeping what I've got. Whether there's, you know, the ecumen of worlds out there or whatever. This is my kingdom on winter. And my enemy is Ogarin. And now what's he saying? He's saying, now that it's being forced on him, the very first thought is, I still have, I can, what advantage is it to me? There is an advantage to, to Carhide, Carhide first, and you also hurt my enemies. It's still local control. It's still thinking locally. So the Ekumen may be saying, Jen the I may be saying, my master is mankind, all of humankind whom I serve. But the leadership of Carhide is still saying, local is what counts. Local is yeah, what counts. It reminds me a lot of, um, did you see Star Trek First Contact? Yeah, of course. Well, there's this scene where, you know, the Borg are taking over the Enterprise and Captain Picard and there's that woman that they brought back from planet Earth from, you know, back in the day when they were just starting Warp Drive and they're walking through and he's showing her the planet through a portal and she says, how much did this ship cost? And he says, in the 21st century, people don't, you know, we don't use money. And she says, well, then what faction are you with? And he says, well, we don't have factions. And it, I mean, it's just, it reminds me a lot of this, that, you know, at some point... You know, everyone seems to think that we're going to evolve past factions and past groups and past, you know, money and everything. But there's always, you know, even when faced with that, people still, you know, return to their, at least in this book, you know, they return to their, we have to think about the factions here. We can't, you know, we can't, we can't move beyond that to the, you know, greater scale of things. It yeah, interesting. By the way, the Founding Fathers thought globally first. The founding Fathers, American Founding Fathers, we're talking, you know. Adams, Jefferson, we're talking uh, Hamilton, Benjamin Franklin, the works. They all said, well, look, we want consensus. We want consensus. Well, the government will start up only when all 13 states agree to it. And the idea of factions, Madison's Federalist 10, very strongly argued that this government will be in the absence of factions. We will not have factions. But those very same people, once they got into power, within a few years, started to divide up and have factions. So, factions seems to be the normal tendency of human affairs. Even 
when our, among our own founding fathers in this country decided to create a government that would not have factions, that's what they got by their own actions. They got factions. And the thing is, I mean, just people have fundamental differences. I mean, I mean, asking asking for a government without factions is like asking two people to be the same person. I mean, you're you're asking people to not have differences. Now, let's take this faction issue a little farther. What happens when you have a very large government and the factions are no longer just legislative factions? Don't we now have a SARF faction or, and indeed what we see here, an intelligence community faction fighting for their local control? You see, this article here in the New York Times about the reclassification of documents, the only thing that those documents dating back to the 1950s are saying is that there was incompetence in the intelligence community. That threatens only one group, the intelligence community. <laughs> so they're protecting their faction. And what we're getting from Ursula Le Guin is that there's a natural tendency for people to think locally. And locally means the intelligence community defending itself. SARF, not, not defending Ogarin, but SARF defending itself. And what we get from the New York Times is the U.S. intelligence community not defending the United States, but defending itself. It all breaks down to locality, local factions defending themselves. And what she's saying here, when we're looking at this androgynous species of humans, and this androgynous collection of humans on this other planet, she's trying to get us out of our own box so we can see them and from the perspective of looking at them afresh, turn back and see ourselves. It's not these androgynous people in the planet of winter that we're looking at. It's ourselves. We are, we are the faction-dominated thinking people. We are the ones that all of us break into local groups and defend our groups. But this says something even more powerful about what causes us to change. What was Jen Lee offering them? Hey, just look up. Look up into the sky and join the rest of the humanity. I mean, what's wrong with that? There was a plus-plus situation for everything. But, just think about it. Anytime you're going to have a change, you're going to have to have people that have established patterns of behavior having to change those established patterns of behavior. And so what's going to happen is that resistance to, to changing the established patterns of behavior produces a level of fear on the factions themselves because they say, if things get reorganized, will I still be in control? There's always that question. If things get reorganized, will I still have control the way I have control now? And that's the dominating influence of Ogarin, the factions in Ogarin. They're afraid of the stars, not because the stars are bringing a bad message, but because locally there would be a change and there's a concern. What would that change be? And in fact, when it did actually happen, there was change in Ogarin. New factions came in, <laughs> establishing again a new set of control parameters that will establish itself for the next few hundred years but or the next 20 years or 50 years or whatever but it's the new set of factions that come in and then they 
establish their own rigidity. So what we're seeing here is something that's very human. Humans break up into factions and defend themselves locally at all costs, regardless of the overall benefit that may occur to the larger picture. Well, look at this in terms of our energy supplies. Aren't we doing the exact same thing? We know the answer to the energy. We, can, we have known for decades how to make our buildings hugely more efficient in terms of the loss of energy coming out. We have known for decades how to proceed with research and development into alternative forms of energy. And when Jimmy Carter started to do that in the 1970s, the reaction was tremendously against it. Factions defended their own turf. What's the major faction in the energy production uh, industry? We're all factions. Think of us just now as factions. It's carbon-based stuff, right? Oil, gas, coal. They fought like the Dickens in order to stop Jimmy Carter's program from producing these economical research and development programs that would make energy altern- alternative energy more uh, more efficient and more competitive. They were risking loss of control, risking loss of control. See if these alternative forms of energy actually open, actually start up. The risk is, well, would the energy producers have control of that anymore? That's what factions risk every time there's change. Now we're in a situation where George Bush has adopted the alternative energy program or idea, but he's adopted it with the understanding that the traditional centers of energy production will be able to transfer their control into these new realms. So you have traditional energy moving into wind, traditional energy moving into these other things. Whereas back in Jimmy Carter's day, you had outside people, people new in industry, new in business, new in in energy formation coming in right right off the boat and starting up energy concerns, threatening the stability of the existing factions. And the factions fought back and came in hard during in, in the Reagan presidency and seized back control over the alternative energy program. So what you see here is it's a basic fundamental characteristic of human nature. That's what she's really talking about, that we have this idea of control, to control locally. Now, let's go into the German citizen who was seized by the U.S. falsely, sent to Kabul, Afghanistan, and tortured on this program program that the U.S. has been following for a long time called rendition. A way to torture people and not torture them yourself, if you think you're going to get caught, is to send them to some place where you know they will be tortured by somebody else. And then have an intelligence agent, Sam, show up during the torturing to get information out. How does that relate to the novel? It's the same thing that happened to Jim Lee in the end. I mean, they they put him in a penal colony for no apparent reason. I mean, you know, he hadn't done anything. Um, and they just picked him up one night, took him to a penal colony, and then they kept interrogating him every five days, I think is what he said, or four days or something. They'd shoot him up with drugs and ask him some questions, which he didn't know the answers to, and then they would let him go back to the barracks, and they'd shoot him up with drugs again. And... And what was funny was that everyone, or not funny, but what, I mean, what everyone outside thought was that these people were just working. And I mean, I know even Estrovin said, you know, I, I'd heard some stories 
but I didn't really believe that they used those places for interrogation. Yeah. I thought they were yeah. just work colonies. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's just kind of like he got, he didn't do anything, he got picked up, he got taken to the penal colony and was interrogated for no apparent reason. It was of use to the factions in power at Oberyn. To have him out of the way, definitely. To have him out of the way and to have him tortured. That's what I was going to say. Like, anytime someone seems, even if they really aren't, or potentially like a threat to that control, they are automatically taken out. We even saw that in Brave New World when he gets exiled. Like, Mm -hmm. it's just a common concept, even today, like, with all the terrorist stuff going on, obviously, seen in this case as well. Now, when he was, that's a great great example. Uh, It does connect with Brave New World. Now, when. When Jin Liai was sent to the penal colony, how was he done so? Was he captured as most wanted terrorist, put on TLVL no, television? Is it? Any, like, public All secret. Yeah. All secret. All in the dark. No one actually knew. In fact, they had announced that he had died. Kept away. What happened to this German citizen that the U.S. seized and sent to Kabul, Afghanistan, to be tortured. His embassy wasn't notified. Nobody was notified. Nobody was notified. It was all kept in the dark until finally it came out. If you've been reading the papers closely, one of the things that you'll be seeing and have been seeing is that same case is being raised with, with a, a huge number of people that are in Guantanamo prison, the U.S. military prison in Guantanamo, Cuba that many of these people are being held without any not only without any charges but without, with complete knowledge that they are just innocent bystanders that were happened to be swooped up and that they can't be let out because then it would let people know that they were innocently swooped up as long as they're there and incommunicado and in prison then that is, that information is not being released and if that information were to be publicly and it's actually coming out in the papers right away but it, it's coming out in the New York Times this last week they had a number of articles about that but if it were to come out in the sense of the prisoners themselves being released openly the US government saying we really screwed up we just you know we swooped up a couple taxi drivers <laughs> Actually, remember, there was a taxi driver who was killed in Afghanistan, tortured by U.S. military people. Uh, it turned out later he was just a taxi driver, just happened to have been driving by. They swooped him up and beat him mercilessly until he died. It happened in two cases. And then, so, what do we actually get when we have these secret swoopings, secret seizures? When Jen I was done... Well, had that same exact thing to him, taken, seized, secretly, put into a into a prison in a far off place, and compl- and no information about him was kept out. How was the information finally gotten out to Carhide? In fact, that this had happened. Who was the only person that got the information out? That Estrovin. Estrovin did it. And what did he do? Spend his life savings on. Wasn't he Ogarin at the time? He was in Ogarin at the time, but he did one thing to get the information out before he went to do the rescue. Secretly, to get the king of Karhai to know. Oh, he... Oh, I, he did... 
I remember I can't. I mean, I remember he did something like everyone. He would. went to a friend in the embassy. Remember? Oh yeah. Who yeah. owed him a favor and said, "Get this, get this information to the king of Karhide that that Genlai is not dead. He's been sent to such and such prison." And then you, then Esteban went off to start the rescue. When was this book first copyrighted? What's the copyright date on this book? The Left Hand of Darkness. When did Ursula Le Guin first publish this book? 1969. 1969. You see why science fiction is science fiction? It tells us stuff not just about history. It tells us about ourselves, our very nature. It, a foretelling, a social foretelling. So here she's talking about, in 1969, Gen Lee I on this far-off planet. And here we have a situation where we ourselves, the Orgarine of this planet, the enlightened society, the society that's well organized, the one that on the surface looks open, capturing people, swooping them up, sending them into torture, keeping our factions in control, secret documents being taken off the shelves. It lets you give a reflection of our own society, that our own society seductively looks open, but you say, what is actually open in our society? When you turn on the TV, what really is open? The Olympics? American Idol singing? Pop singing? MTV? You want to claim the Olympics is open? Well, in the sense that there are sports competitors. All People right. are watching it on TV. All right. Entertainment is open, is what I'm saying. These people, these Olympic people, are really not sports people. They're entertainers. They're doing a bad job. What's that? They're doing a bad job right now. They're, oh, the Americans are, yeah, they're not doing so well right now. Go ahead. The document is not like, it's the reason that, like, the stuff, the like, movies with the A-list always tend to get better than another movie. Like Wait, the, the reason that movies with the aliens? A-list. Like the Hollywood elite. The big, the big the Hollywood big movies. movies. Okay, the reason the they big Hollywood movies. Like, even if they're not a good movie, they end up better than a smaller movie, which is better. Uh-huh. So in that way, you can't say that entertainment is full and free. Okay. Because there's a lot of like, politics involved there as well. That's a good point. The entertainment industry isn't as open as... as, as, as as it, it seems to be. Actually, th- that's a very good point. What is the one company that owns MTV, VH1, Nickelode- I think Nickelodeon, a zillion things plus a, a billion r- you know, radio stations and everything? Well, I know in Atlanta the big one is Clear Channel, but I don't know. Clear Channel is one, Viacom is the Viacom. other. They also, that's why if you go from station to station to station, no matter where you are in the United States, you get the same playlist over and over and over again. That's why these satellite station, these satellite uh, Sirius and, and what's XM. the other one? XM. XM. They're, they're, they're trying to compete with the, basically the companies that own everything. So there is a level of control. Again, controlling the factions, wanting to maintain control. But on the other hand, that really wasn't what I was trying to get at. What is open in, in the sense of in the sense of what people, when they turn on the TV, they get something. What do they get? They get non-threatening information. Who's the better singer at American Idol? They get 
non-threatening. They get musical stuff. They get love tunes, love songs on VH1, v, uh, MTV. Do you get the idea? Mm-hmm. That type of stuff is open. Go ahead. And just think that MTV doesn't play music anymore. It's all about I know, it's other stuff. It used to play more music, and now, but you know, yeah, you're right. And even that, there's a, there's a, there's been a shift. Actually, I, I, you know, I teach a course, politics and music, and I've become rather, dis- rather uh, discouraged recently because you don't get very good videos, uh, musical videos on the on those stations anymore that are. Everything's just love tunes. You don't get a lot of stuff that's really controversial on that. In the early days, you used to get more of that stuff, so it's harder to get. And now, with you can't get. Yeah, well anyway, that's a whole nother. That's a whole nother story. But the the issue that I'm really pressing here is that the information that you do have access to, relatively free access, is totally non-threatening to any faction in terms of political stuff. But information that has any type of threat to a f- to the status quo of local control, factions, local control, you have rigidity, and you have something that is uh, is very difficult to dislodge. Well, where does that leave humanity? Here we are in a situation where we're we're doing the same thing that Orgarine did, that in in terms of seizing people that are innocent and sending them off to be tortured, whatever. On the other hand, on the surface, it seems like we have a free and open society. Documents, information is being kept from the public, but on the surface, it seems like we have a free and open society. Well, if that's true of the United States, what's happening elsewhere? Meaning, is it a human condition? What is Ursula Le Guin saying about how humans evolve? If we are left to our own devices... What happens? Do we better ourselves as a society if we are left to our own devices? No. Yeah. We stagnate in, in attempts at self-control. Or not self-control, but attempts at local control. We stagnate to continue attempts for local control. Very interesting. So what do we rely on in order to change? External. Well, I mean... In the Keep going. What was your... You were saying external... Well, I mean, we always rely on on someone else. It's always the it's always the the free thinker, the random. You know, we don't ever get anywhere. What? Like yeah, the aberrations. Like aberrations in the historical thing. Everybody is the same, and then you get one like every hundreds of years. You just get. What one. are those called? Anomalies. The anomalies, and what are they also called in 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 terms of uh, psychohistory? Aberrations, mutants. Oh, not just the mule, not just the not just the anomalies. That what a, you go through something else. What did Asimov say? Oh. He 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 was. What did Asimov actually depend on for the functioning of psychohistory? Crises. Crises. That's it. Now the rule. The the mule was an anomaly to the normal set of crises, but it, we but. And so, getting you know, getting the mule sort of fixed, so that he was not disturbing the plan so much was crucial. But then, does that mean everything was going to be hunky dory and calm? No. No, you were just. You go through periods of crises. That's exactly right. You have to set yourselves up. What you do is you basically set society up to go on automatic pilot, and then what happens? What happened with Asimov's Foundation Trilogy? 
every single time, what happened? It reaches a point where you can't go the way you were going anymore. The factors around you, your environment has changed while you were just going on that part in such a way that either you change or you and there was you're absolutely right and there was no other way to go remember remember they said that there was only you kept on going until there was no other way and that and that route the only the, the final route is that's when all of the factions had exhausted every resource they had to maintain and continue to control what they already had when all of those things were exhausted and only one option was left for everybody and then you had a crisis, a Selden crisis. Now let's look at what happened with Ursula Le Guin and the left hand of darkness. The Ogarine had tried everything. They had listened to Jen Lee They didn't let anybody outside of their own internal governmental groups hear what he had to say. But it seemed open, whining and dining him in the restaurants and so on. They had shipped him off to a penal colony. They had thought they had dispensed with him. On Carhide, they had banished Estraven. They had not let Jen Lai go any further. He had to finally, he finally had to leave. But what finally happened? All of the countries, both of the countries, had exhausted all resources that they could to control it. And then, what about Jen Lai? What's that? He was still there. They had no choice. There was no choice left for them but to accept him there. There was no choice left for Carhide or Orgarin, but there was also no choice left for Jen Lee. Estrovin, his advisor, said, You have no choice. It will never happen. There's only one thing you can do force the issue, create, in Asmo's sense, a Selden crisis. You have no alternative. Bring the ship down and let the powers re- reorient themselves. Crises. We are a species that relies on crises in order to move forward. It's not that the intelligence people are bad. Our CIA and DIA and our intelligence community, it's not that they're bad like the SARF is bad and Ogarin. They're just people. They're, they're factions. They're a group and they seek internal control just like all other factions seek internal control. Yet they, as much as every other faction, rely on external events that put them into a situation where there is absolutely no other way to go. There's only one route left, and then they go through the crisis. Everything gets reoriented, and then a new status quo happens. And then what happens with that new status quo? According to Asimov, that will take over for the next hundred years or whatever, until the next crisis. Isn't that interesting? Ursula Le Guin has a very great deal in common with Asimov. Nothing happens just because it's a good idea. Change happens only because people are forced to accept the change after they have exhausted all other resources, including seizing people, innocent people, sending them off to be tortured, keeping it all secret, including that. It all goes back to the same motivation, control and maintain of control for factions. It's a very interesting thing.
Now we have five minutes left to do this before before we do that. Before we go up, let's turn to page one sixty, and this is on chapter eleven. Soliloquies in Mishnori. This really emphasizes this is what we were talking about before. Page one sixty. Once more, oh, by the way, and this is uh, Estrovin pressing his friend to open up society. And let's listen to what he said. Once more, I pressed on Obsley the feasibility of having, i.e., radio his starship. This is when he's in Ogarin. With both Genli I as well as uh, Estrovin. Once more, I pressed, the, I pressed on Obsley the feasibility of having, i.e., radio his starship waken the people aboard and ask them to converse with the common souls by radio hookup to the hall of the 33. This time, Obsley had a reason ready for not doing so. Listen, Estrovin, my dear. The SARF runs all our radio. You know that by now. I have no idea, even I, which of the men in communications are the SARF men. Most of them, no doubt, for I know as a fact that they run the transmitters and receivers on every level right down to the technicians and repairmen. They could and would block or falsify any transmission we received if we did receive one. Can you imagine what's that scene in the hall? We outer spacers, victims of our own hoax, listening with bated breath to a clutter of static and nothing else, no answer, no message. A couple things coming through here. What does the intelligence community use, according to Ursula Le Guin, in order to control? Go ahead. I was just going to say, the transmitter or something, that if they seem to think some information is not good, they block it. If the information is not good, they block it. You know what that's called? Censorship. Or they come out with not just not just blocking the information, but what do they come out with? They like, make it false information. They have, it's called disinformation. The intelligence community controls not just by blocking information, but by feeding disinformation, feeding incorrect information. That's how they control their fat. Information is what they do. They control information. That's the nature of intelligence community. And it's not just that they block information, but they feed incorrect information. Now, one of the things we have to then say is, if that's the normal modus operandi of the, contro- of the intelligence community, and it's not just a novel, it really happens. And we are arguably among the most open of societies on this planet, then the real question you have to ask, what is Ursula Le Guin, or Ursula Le Guin telling us about our current state of affairs? What I read you today in the New York Times is old stuff. That program to reclassify documents. <laughs> it's old. <laughs> it's been going on since 1999. The seizure of citizens, of, of innocent people, and swooping them off to various places, prisons in Kabul. I mean, I'm sure some of the people in Guantanamo were enemy combatants, but a number of them are innocent. And we can't get any information out of them other than acknowledgments leaking out that in fact they can't release some of them because that would simply tell people that they really screwed up. So 
what does that tell us about what we don't know? Meaning, you're hearing about Guantanamo. You're hearing about U.S. reclassifying documents. You're hearing about people being seized and sent to Kabul and, and other places under rendition. But you're only hearing about it after accidental investigations, like a historian coming by, mentioning something, or the New York Times discovering something after a long period. What does it really say? That these are accidental discoveries and that most of what you don't know, you still don't know. That means what we really have, even in the most open society on the planet Earth, what we really have at all levels is secret government. That government by humans, not the U.S. government, but government by humans runs on the level of controlling individuals by keeping information away from people. Puts us in the most odd of circumstances. We're in a situation in which if there were aliens looking down on us and able to study what we're doing, just as Jen Liai and the ecumen were looking down on the winter world, all of humanity or all of existence up there would know everything that's going on on the planet. The only thing that the people on the planet are controlling are themselves. All of the universe can know what's going on on that planet. It's the people down on the planet and only them that are keeping the secrets from themselves. Do you see how ironic that is? The whole universe knows what's going on. It's just the people in the factions controlling their own small groups. Pardon me? In the end, isn't that what's important to them? Controlling that's what's what they have. That's and because that's what's locally only only the only thing that's important to them. Controlling locally. It's so ironic. It reminds you of a zookeeper who is looking at a bunch of chimps and all of the visitors to the zoo are looking through the cage and looking at the chimps and they watch one chimp hide a banana from the other chimps <laughs> all the people look at it and everyone can see what the chimp is doing but to the chimp it's ultimately important keep that banana from the other chimps yet the rest of all of existence can see what's going on. Except that, that metaphor can be taken a step further. If you take it, the zookeeper looking in at the chimps doing that, the zookeeper is seeing the chimps as like his animals is important to him, while he's being controlled by uh, the workforce, like the manager of the zoo, who then. Interesting. Yes. So you're you're raising it to the next level that the who is controlling the zookeeper. <laughs> That's exactly right. But anyway, you see, so Ursula Gwyn is actually raising some issues that are of a fundamental importance to the interpretation of our own newspaper, of our own of our own own stuff. And uh, one of the things, that, that the thing we should really sort of end with is, if you just read these two articles that I read today to start off the class, U.S. reclassifies many documents in secret review, and uh, Germans looking into complicity and seizure by the U.S. of this, uh, this innocent person. Well, what do you get from it? You get, hey, the U.S. is doing bad things. What do you get when you look at it from the perspective of Ursula Le Guin, however? You feel sort of sorry for the U.S. in a real sense. You sort of say, it's not that the U.S. is doing bad things, it's that we humans have a problem. 
It's a human problem. The U.S. is no different than anybody else. And if the SARF were doing it, or the intelligence community was doing it, well, if, if there was somebody else, they'd be doing it. Yeah, that's a problem. That's a problem. We are in a serious species problem. And you don't get that from the New York Times. You get that from science fiction. Isn't it? <laughs> it's an interesting point. Okay, look, um, I will have these papers graded and back to you on... Uh, Thursday. And what do we start next? What's our next novel? David Brin, The Uplift War, one of the great all-time novels. The Uplift War. Uh, and so what we want to do is start it, try to get about... It's a, it's a little bit longer than Ursula Le Guin, so try to get about at least, at least one-third of the way in. Try to get at least 150 to 200 pages into it, okay? Over the it's a it's a fast reading book. It's a great book, The Uplift War. But uh, try to get a couple hundred pages into it, and then you can finish it over the weekend. Okay. All right, great. But definitely at least a couple hundred pages uh, by Thursday. Okay.